Few of us are privileged to live in a time when we are witnesses to the march of history, when we are eyewitnesses to tumultuous events which are going to rock the world in the decades ahead and which are going to cause literally tens of millions of Americans to think back to a time in the distant past. Perhaps for them it was 1954 or 1957 or 61 or 65 or 71 or two or three. When they heard a voice on a program called The World Tomorrow, consistently, repetitiously, year after year, night after night, decade after tiresome decade, talking about the scenario that would eventually obtain to change this world in the time toward the end of this century. And that scenario went something like this. As a matter of fact, I have begun many of my personal appearance campaigns with these precise words. The last chapter of European history has not been written. The Western Allies have accepted as a status quo for these 44 years the partition of Germany, the artificial division of the cultural, of the social, historical, economic, and even spiritual heartland of Germany, the city of Berlin. When the three big powers divided up the post-World War II European map between themselves, first at Yalta and later at Potsdam, it was only in hindsight that we saw the incredible errors made by Roosevelt and Churchill and the demands by a dictator called Joseph Stalin, who at his own time had carried out his pogroms and murdered perhaps far more of his own people than did Adolf Hitler that we should be, not be denied easy access to West Berlin than occupied by the three victorious allied powers in the West and occupied by the Germans and their, their puppet government of the Soviet Union to the East, became utterly ridiculous when in the worst winter the world had seen in many decades in 1946, it appeared that tens of thousands of Germans were going to starve unless America began to immediately intervene in what became the famous Berlin Airlift. For many, many decades, when I traveled to West Germany, we always had to go to one of three German cities. Usually, always, it was Frankfurt, or perhaps it was Dusseldorf, or Hamburg, and then to fly along a certain narrow corridor about five miles wide. And if you ventured into Soviet airspace, you ran the risk of being shot down. And then you could land at either one of the two West Berlin airports. When I first traveled to Germany in 1956, there were obvious relics of World War II practically everywhere. When I first came to Berlin, there was the bell tower along with the standing remnants of the famous old church, which is still there to this day. There were several dozen blocks in all directions leading up to that church that were simply level lots, many of them with walls around them, many of them with neat piles of bricks and rubble. But at that time, Germany had already begun to emerge from the ashes of defeat. And the Kurfürstendamm, the heart of West Berlin and the main shopping street in West Berlin, was nevertheless a glittering avenue of beautiful new shops. But it was very easy to see a great deal of the relics of World War II, many of the old shards of shattered buildings. In the hotel in which we stayed, as a matter of fact, it was kind of pieced together from a couple of old buildings and the exterior walls. You could still see some of the hawk marks of the shrapnel and the shell uh, shells from Soviet tanks and cannon that had hit it, 
and destruction was everywhere evident, like on one automobile trip when we drove through Aachen and had come through Belgium in Dekirk, where many of the Americans died in the Battle of the Bulge, and we had seen the relics of World War II. You could look then across the Brandenburg Gate because it was simply a no-man's land of barbed wire, and you could see nothing but rubble as far as the eye could behold in East Berlin. In subsequent trips, when I would go to Dusseldorf or to Bonn or to Essen or to Köln, or down to München or Munich, as they say, to interview Franz Josef Strauss, it seemed every year or two that I would go over there, I would see remarkable change, and I would write an article from on the spot in Germany, or do radio programs from there, and talk about the fact that the Germans were emerging as a modern miracle of industry, a new financial empire, the strongest nation in Europe, and literally for decades we have been hammering away on that theme. Not that Germany will rise again, but Germany is risen. She had become, by the middle 1960s, the strongest nation inside Central Europe. She had become the nation which, when Britain finally went hat in hand and even sent Queen Elizabeth II over there to help solidify the deal, when the sick man of Europe, as she was then called, wanted to gain entrance into the burgeoning common market, it was for quite a period of time in the minds of many Western analysts, that Britain would be denied entry into the common market because her flagging economy would in fact pull down the Wirtschaftswunder of West Germany, the miracle of rebuilding, and that they could simply not admit such a flagging economy into their midst. But they did, and I have to confess a little bit to my own surprise. After that event, I began to realize far more so than I had previously that the coming United States of Europe is not going to grow out of the EEC. That is, the EEC will not someday simply become a United States of Europe, but that Euromart, as it first was called, or the European Economic Community, as it now has become known, would become like the brainchild. It would become like the very first movement in that direction, but some of its current members would no longer be members of the ten-nation United States of Europe that was to arise. As I look back through history, and I have done so in the last several days by getting many of my bound copies of my Plain Truth and Good News and Tomorrow's World magazines, and I have our own office staff beginning to research dozens of my sermon tapes, of my campaign tapes, of broadcast tapes, and of television tapes, and of course 11 years of our own publications of the International News and 20th Century Watch, to look at all that has been written and all that has been said. If I could compile it all together, it would literally require a large book, a very large book, perhaps as large as this version of the Bible, to even begin to put together the hundreds upon hundreds of pages from every conceivable aspect, the disintegration of the American economy, the morals toboggan slide of the American people, the breakup of the American home and family, the pollution of air, water, and solids. The problems of a country that has looked upon itself as the new Romans, ruling as it were the world, a country that cannot enjoy its breakfast, toast, and coffee so long as someone in Central America is acting up and wants to immediately send our own army down there to control everyone, a country that believes we should interfere in the sovereign governments as far away as Korea or Vietnam, a country that in all proportion in all sense, in every way you can think of since World War II when we emerged as the victor possessing the atomic bomb, has acted like an empire. 
has swung its weight around in this world until we have made so many enemies that we have scarcely any friends at all. From every conceivable point of view, whether it had to do with the economy, with crime, with socioeconomic crises and problems inside our big cities, we have written hosts of articles talking about the eventual great tribulation that is to strike Jacob, which we have consistently identified as the United States of America and the British Commonwealth of Nations. This becomes all the more poignant when I remind you that during all of these decades, practically 100% of all evangelists, of all prognosticators, whether geopolitical, sociological, the think tanks along the Hudson River under Herman Kahn, or those who wrote books that were both religious and perhaps written toward the layman's point of view, like Hal Lindsey, had painted a far different scenario. All of them had identified, as if with one voice, the Soviet Union as the beast of Revelation 17, the beast of Bible prophecy, the fourth beast of Daniel's seventh chapter. They identified the participants in the coming battle of Armageddon, this includes Dr. Billy Graham, as the Soviet Union. It was the Soviet Union who would advance into Palestine and precipitate World War III. All of them, as if with one voice, continued to hammer away on that same thing. And every one of them were wrong. Every one of them was a false prophet. Not a one of them knew the identity of the British Commonwealth of People in the United States in biblical prophecy, and therefore, because they did not know the master key that unlocks all of that one-third of the Bible that is prophecy to their understanding, they could not tell their people the real truth about what was going to happen. Now, by now, you're very much aware of what has been happening. I don't know if you are as aware as perhaps many people who are writing the articles for some of the major magazines, such as Time, is one Germany better than two, the New York Post, or the Washington Post Weekly, rather, the Global Pulse, with quotations, the walls of Europe are tumbling down, from Erdogan Kranz and others, Eastern Europe, a new economic miracle in Business Week, the esteemed economist from Britain remixing Europe with a map of all of Europe showing it being scrambled together, the U.S. News and World Report, Communist Meltdown, these and others I have read virtually from cover to cover, and there are many more out and many more coming. When I was in Berlin just the other day, I looked around me and listened to announcers standing at the Brandenburg Gate and the wall in the voice of the Argentine news media, rapidly speaking in Spanish. There were Japanese camera crews staying in our hotel. There were the West German crews up there on the scaffolding, practically day and night. There were the American camera crews there from the big networks and CNN. We talked to a couple of them. There were people there from all over the world. In Czechoslovakia, the entire government resigned. In East Germany, the entire government resigned. Now, time and time again, back in the 1960s and 70s, when I began my sermons by saying the last chapter of European history has not been written, I went on to draw the scenario as follows. Probably at least five of the nations that will comprise the coming United States of Europe are going to come from East Europe, 
That means automatically the disintegration of the Warsaw Pact, and that automatically also means the disintegration of NATO. It also means, therefore, the lessening of the iron grip of the Soviet Union on those Eastern European puppet states. So, as I said continually, it means the toppling of governments. What have we been witnessing in the past two weeks? How many governments that have been firmly ensconced, sometimes in the hands of old, hardline Communist Party bosses, for 38 and more solid years, have come toppling down in moments when hundreds of thousands of people have taken to the streets to demonstrate and vociferously demand their rights. Who triggered it all? Who started it all? It actually began before the present Soviet leader came to the fore in communist Russia. It actually began with a man named Lech Walesa, who had a lot of support inside an established organization in his country where 90-some percent of all the people daily, and certainly every Sunday, devoutly go off to Catholic Mass. It happened, and it began to happen, much like a huge crowbar being put to the first little niche inside the Berlin Wall, when a man named Karol Wojtyla acceded to the papacy, and a Polish pope was ensconced in Rome, and went to his own native country on at least two trips. There were up to one million people that would meet him in the square of his hometown of Krakow. He became, in the next decade, the most well-known, the most revered, the most popular, the most charismatic single human being in all of Earth's history. When you stop to think about instant global communications, telecommunication, and you think of all the world and what they actually think about the Pope, who is in Rome, John Paul II, and all that he has done, he has been the most traveled Pope in all of history. During those years, what began to be fostered and nurtured in the hearts of a few people around a ship builder or ship worker up in Gdansk named Lech Valenza began to spread to other people in little towns and villages and especially in the big cities and inside the industry of a flagging economy where people were standing four abreast around five and six blocks waiting for a pound of potatoes and getting there finally after an hour's, hour's long wait to find that they were out. And because of the continual sponsorship and the support of the Roman Catholic clergy, of the priests, of the archbishops, and of the Pope himself, that government was afraid, even years ago, to do to Lech Valenza and his little solidarity, labor union, one of the trappings of Western democratic institutions, not an Eastern European Soviet-dominated government at all, but a labor union trying to experience a birth out of the matrix of a shipyard in northern Poland was given succor and aid and encouragement on a weekly basis by one major force in the world. It had nothing to do with the White House. It had nothing to do with the CIA. It had nothing to do with the American State Department. It was sponsored and it was given birth by the Pope at Rome and the Roman Catholic Church. I told many of you people who were down at Jekyll Island in 1978, which was only a very short time after this Polish Pope was named, that that was going to prove one of the major events which would pry loose the Soviet grip from Eastern Europe. And we have seen this come to pass in a reverse domino effect. One nation after another has begun to be pried loose from the grip of the Soviet Union. When Gorbachev began to realize that if he didn't do something, he was looking at another Soviet revolution. 
because seven out of fifteen of the Soviet republics had already drifted into ferment. People were not only screaming for their national flag, their national slogans, their national language, their national identity, they were also screaming for economic reform, because it all boiled down to the simple necessities of life. Food, and there wasn't any or enough of it. Clothing, and there wasn't any kind of variety or sufficient clothing. Shelter, and when you had to wait seven, eight, or ten years for a tiny walk-up apartment with a, a bathroom down the hall, it didn't make sense that people in those countries should be denied what they could see easily if they could tap into Western radio or television was being given millions of their fellow countrymen across that wall. And so all over the Soviet Union, the desire for reform as a result of an absolute failed economic system were everywhere in the wind. Gorbachev merely got the message before some of the satellite government leaders did in Eastern Europe and began to do something about it. Gorbachev triggered the riots in China. Gorbachev triggered the complete collapse of the government inside of Poland. Gorbachev has triggered everything that has gone on in East Europe ever since by the simple fact that he has said they would not interfere if East European nations that were a part of the Warsaw Pact decided to solve their own problems internally. And so what we are seeing is people that took to the streets in Prague, who before were crushed underfoot Soviet tank treads as far back as 1956, could be out there in those streets with their torches demonstrating in 200,000 massive numbers of them in Wenceslas Square with no fear of interference on the part of the police or the army or the Soviet garrison inside that country whatsoever because Gorbachev had flatly said, we will not interfere. They would not have dared have taken to the streets if Gorbachev had not done it all. Isn't it amazing the speed with which it has all occurred? When I think back that on the very day I landed in Berlin, the leader of another great Eastern European country was saying, no change. We're going to remain in power. We will not tolerate any dissidents. And he's gone, as we sit here today. He isn't in office anymore. He's a private citizen, going to look for a job somewhere, I suppose. How rapidly it has all happened. In a special decade-end issue of the 20th Century Watch magazine, which we're busily preparing, I've already begun to do some research, which I have but six single-page, single-space pages here that I quickly took off of my computer this morning. I'm going to give you just a very few excerpts from them. This is to be in a box in duotone in the next issue, which will hopefully come out around December, perhaps hit people's homes sometime in January of 1990, the beginning of the next decade, in Watch Magazine to accompany the lead article on the reunification of Germany and events that have taken place in Berlin. I'm putting it this way. Below is the shocking proof of the consistent witness and warning that has been going out to the world for literally decades. A warning about a coming United States of Europe and a reunified Germany dominating such a union. Excerpts are taken from articles in past issues of the Plain Truth magazine, which I was executive editor. Many from past issues of 20th Century Watch. I will have very few of those here today because I have yet to research many of them. Many from the international news and from tape-recorded sermons and personal appearance campaigns from all across the country. Some are excerpts from my father's early articles, some from senior editors or staff writers. Most excerpts from my own articles or sermons. All show a consistent decades-long theme of warning about a coming United States of Europe, most of it during the very worst part of the Cold War, when most, if not all, professing prophets 
were predicting a coming war between the United States and Russia, falsely identifying Russia as the beast of prophecy. I can only give you a very few because it would take all my time to quote them, and I don't even have it about a third of them here. The Plain Truth, June 1952, quote, The ten horns symbolized by the seven heads with its ten horns in the 17th chapter of Revelation will be the revival of the beast, the Roman Empire, by a United States of Europe or federation of ten European nations within the bounds of the old Roman Empire, and that includes Eastern Europe. The Plain Truth, September 1952, I'd only been out of the Navy for a few months. Under the article, The Beast is Rising Up, written by my brother from Paris, France, while the eyes of the world are focused solely on the danger of communism, America is overlooking the greatest danger the world has ever known, a new power rising up in Europe, a combination of ten nations that will crush Western civilization. The Plain Truth, September 1953. This, that is, riots that occurred that year in East Germany, is the beginning of the East German revolt against red tyranny. A little ahead of time, weren't we? That was a long time ago. Czechoslovakia, Poland, and other conquered nations behind the Iron Curtain have witnessed similar uprisings in recent weeks. It will take time. We didn't know how many years it would take. But Russia is going to lose out in some of these countries. The Plain Truth, 1954, in November. And now a short, year, a short nine years later, that is after Churchill had said the Western allies should ensure that all German industry capable of producing arms should be eliminated, Behold the spectacle of Washington and London making every possible effort, backed by American dollars, to do two things, create a United States of Europe and rearm Germany. The Plain Truth, 1955, in February. News analysts are worried over what they see taking place. The Allied powers are spending billions of dollars to bring about the German dream of centuries, a united Europe with Germany at its head. This is what the Kaiser wanted. It's exactly what Hitler killed millions for. And it's exactly what your tax dollars are bringing. I'll skip several years here, 55, 56, come to 1962 in February. On the World Tomorrow program in the page of the Plain Truth, we've shouted to a heedless world for years that this was going to occur, that it would first come about as an economic force bringing unprecedented prosperity to Europe, but also it's to become a political and military combine, a gigantic third power block in the world that will include more population, greater manpower, and even greater military resources than either the United States or Russia. Incidentally, to ad-lib for a moment, they've already announced in some of these weekly news magazines that I've been quoting from recently that when the two Germanys reunify without any kind of amalgamation of any other force that is at their disposal, the two standing armies presently under arms in those two countries will immediately emerge as the third largest standing army in the world, bigger than France, bigger than Britain, second only behind the Soviet Union and the United States. Fact. Plain Truth, March 1962. Fascism in Europe is about to be reborn in respectable business attire, and the Treaty of Rome will finally be implemented to its fullest extent, the dream of a Holy Roman Empire returning to power to dominate and direct the so-called forces of Christian mankind of the Western world is not dead, but stalks through the antechambers of every national capital of continental Europe. In the determination of the leaders in the common market to restore the Holy Roman Empire with all that means. United with the ancient boundaries of the Holy Roman Empire, united by the common spiritual bond of Catholicism, united in a burgeoning and booming industrial economy that dominates today's world, united geographically, is the most productive and industrial complex on earth, 
At least ten nations of modern Europe will march onto the scene of world history as the greatest single human force ever seen by man. And on and on. I, I just don't want to take further time. May 1962, November 62, the plain truth, November 62. Listen to the one of the most shocking news releases of recent times. All of those deaf to the sound of history can fail to be excited by the French-German rapprochement and the steady movement toward the making of Europe. Historically, political union over so great a space came only from conquest or from the spread of a common culture, where in modern times Napoleon, Bismarck, Hitler, and Stalin failed, reason and mutual necessity are succeeding. A European political union would mean little if the ultimate power of deciding whether it fights and dies is going to rest with the Americans. The plain truth, January 1963, talked about daring new plans for monetary reform and economic planning are on the drawing boards, and these will inextricably mesh the economies of the six and they will clear the way eventually for the final goal of a politically unified Europe. I won't quote more. There are so many more. I could skip ahead to some that I have here that I used in my special prophetic newsletter from the 20th Century Watch in winter of 84. In 78, 85, 87, I have many here, but there are many more that I want to put together in the article, which will accompany another article on the coming reunification of Germany in the upcoming number of Watch magazine. When we got there... It stayed about 33 or 34 degrees the whole time we were there. It seemed like through the daytime and got a lot colder than that at night. We went that very first night for a long walk downtown, and we just saw throngs that were jostling one another that reminded me exactly of the times that I had gone out along Colorado Boulevard and South Orange Grove Boulevard in Pasadena, California on New Year's Eve having lived right near the very start of the Rose Parade and before the famous Rose Parade and Rose Bowl game in Pasadena for over 25 years of my life, we were quite accustomed to crowds that finally soared up to one million people that would pour into a city of approximately 110,000 and would throng those streets. And four or five days before the parade, people would actually pitch little pup tents and bring their RVs and camp along the streets. And then as New Year's Eve approached, the police would actually block off all vehicular traffic and the throngs would take to the streets. And we used to caution our boys when they were growing up. And they wanted to get out and be a part of all this excitement, which is certainly understandable. And we would caution them because sometimes you can get hurt in a crowd like that. Well, as we looked at some of these huge department stores and these glittering malls and the big avenues like Charlottenburgstrasse and the Kurfürstendamm leading to the huge big church and its monument, which is like the combination Times Square and Piccadilly Circus of Berlin, it was impossible not to get caught up in the human wave of emotion of these East German people who had been behind that wall the bulk of them that we saw all their lives, because the broad majority of the people that we saw were probably under 30. And that wall had been in place for 28 years, and of course the partitioning of their nation had been in place for 44 solid years. So believe only those my age and a little older would have had very much recollection because I was 15 when the war was over. When I walked along and saw people under a hastily erected sidewalk kiosk with outdoor umbrellas with crates of imported oranges just ripping apart the things as fast as they could and with people just thronging, couldn't get up there fast enough to buy for the first time in their lives an orange, to buy for the first time in their lives a banana, to get their hands on a pineapple like the young man I saw and I mentioned on the tape that I did standing up over there before the gate 
triumphantly going home with but one trophy from his shopping trip to West Berlin. He was at Checkpoint Charlie going the other way, back to that dismal East Berlin over there, holding in his hand one fresh pineapple. It is hard not to get caught up in the human element of rejoicing with people who are reaching out for what we so commonly take for granted, freedom. The freedom to walk where you want to walk, drive where you want to drive, go through any gate, any state border, any national boundary that you wish, or within limits. We don't all that often perhaps go to Vietnam or to Cuba or to China, but you know what I mean, within limits, within reason. And all of a sudden, within hours, the word got out and it was given to those people that they could go through that wall. Well, the traffic jams went to about 14 miles long, and people were waiting, and they were in that line. They knew they could get out of that one point, like Checkpoint Charlie, and the word came that over at, at the Potsdamer Platz, right within a stone's throw of the Hitler bunker where Hitler had committed suicide in 1945, they were going to bulldoze down a segment and let that road be opened up. But the people waiting in that line were not about to go over there because they didn't want to lose their place in line. They weren't sure that they could believe it or they could trust the information. We missed that first big weekend's party. We were there for the second weekend. We got there on Friday, the Friday following the Sabbath when that gate was opened up. And believe me, that weekend the party took place all over again. Once again, they had to close off all of those streets, miles of them, downtown, to all vehicular traffic. If you got in the doorway of one of those great big high-rise department stores, you were probably going to be forced inside. You were probably going to be forced up the escalator, and you're going to be forced past the ladies' hosiery or someplace before you'd be able to turn left or right and get out of the jam, because people were just jostling one another. But, of course, these were poorly dressed people. They had very little money. They were thronging outside the exchange bureaus and all of the banks, which were staying open way late at night, because the West German government had said that it automatically was going to give approximately $50 into the hand of each one of their East German cousins, just gratis, a handout from the government, to come in and to buy something. Now, you can't buy very much when prices over there average about 12, 15, 20% higher than they are over here. The cheapest set of jeans I found was $22, for example, and many of them on up to 30 and more. So things are not cheap in West Germany by any means. I don't know how to really voice this or explain this except to people my age because some of you younger people have just not known what I'm talking about, but if you can imagine a world in which you had to go to a greengrocer's store to buy vegetables and then to a different store in another part of town to the butcher shop to buy meat and then to a hardware or a dry goods store to buy overalls. And there wasn't any such thing as a mall with all of these wonderful entertainments and all of these wonderful things like bakeries and yogurt and ice cream shops and delightful little cafes and maybe an ice rink in the middle and balcony restaurants and glittering shops of jewelry and leatherware and men's and women's clothing and hardware and cutlery and fine arts and everything you can imagine. But in West Berlin, there are many of these, and they will rival anything you have ever laid your eyes on in the United States of America. We walked into this one mall, and there was the most fascinating fountain you've about ever seen. It was about two and a half stories tall, made of glass, and there was some kind of a huge big bowl of green liquid water that was dyed so you could see it. And it was like a perpetual motion machine. And you would witness it 
coming down into a large cylinder from which a very small cylinder went up and then back down. And as it trickled here and put enough pressure on the large cylinder, then the small cylinder would feed over the top and gradually begin to fill another one further down. And this thing was just in a cyclical motion, continually going and just trying to figure it out and look at it. Well, we joined throngs of East Germans just standing there on the balcony, mesmerized by this fountain. And it was the same in every shop window you would go by. They were standing there just all agog at the things their eyes beheld. The things that we take for granted. They just absolutely never seen before. Well, I won't go into a great deal more de uh, detail on that. I don't think that's the important thing I want to talk about today. The important thing is, where do we go from here? How quickly will German reunification occur? How quickly will the Warsaw Pact be dismantled? How quickly will NATO disappear? How quickly will the United States then withdraw some of its 380 to 400,000 troops that are on West German soil and bring them back to the United States? The American defense minister has already said that on an order of about 5% in the next two years, believe me, we'd better watch what Mr. Gorbachev drops in Mr. Bush's lap in a matter of days on a ship off Malta. Because the Soviet foreign minister has already been quoted several times by members of the press who have gotten to him, we are fully prepared to dismantle the Warsaw Pact the instant NATO is also dismantled. But all that becomes absolutely redundant if the two Germanys multilaterally between themselves decide to reunite. Because the instant they do, the idea of their own security by the third largest standing army in the world is so obvious that there is not one thing anyone in the West is going to be able to do about it. Mrs. Thatcher's visit over here to the United States is far from ceremonial. It is far from a public fare you well I've enjoyed being in office, and I'm going to go the way of all old politicians. I like Mr. Bush. NATO should be kept in place, blah, 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 blah. Because the only people who have begun to voice a very great number of reservations and even deep-rooted fears about what's happening in Germany are the Poles, the British, and the French. Americans are simply too stupid to do so. Or Mr. Bush, when he had been first interviewed about the reunification prospects and about what was happening at the Berlin Wall, would not have said, well, I'm not excited because I'm just not an emotional guy. Because in my own personal opinion, Mr. Bush didn't know the significance of what is happening in Germany. Our State Department did not and does not know the significance of what is happening in Germany. To me, one of the most chilling realities of all of this is, the, is this this fact that I want to develop a little bit in the light of what happened from 1932 to 1939. Not one of the nations of Eastern Europe have had a single establishment inside their country, in their economy, in their legal system, in their transportation system, their educational system, in their government, that even remotely resembles a democracy. I remember giving you the analogy years ago about people who have committed crimes that have been committed to prison for maybe a couple of decades and who then get out, but because their entire lives have been dominated by whistles and bells and cell calls and they have to go here and there and do exactly what they're told and someone is always thinking for them, they will go out and deliberately commit 
a serious crime in order to get thrown back in prison because they cannot cope with standing on their own two feet and making their own decisions. If we think in the United States, if our government thinks, if the British government thinks, that the screams and the cries in the streets of Prague or of any other European capital, in East Berlin, for example, for democracy and for democratic reform are going to bring democracy, we don't know what we're talking about. What it's going to bring is this. It's going to bring the emergence of literally dozens of little upstart political parties at every conceivable wild extreme to suit the wild minds of wild extremists. There are going to emerge, just popping up like mushrooms all over Eastern Europe, political parties across the entire possible conceivable human spectrum of political thought, trying to bring what all these people want. As one magazine, I think it was The Economist, opined in its editorial part, it said, power is lying in the streets in East Germany, waiting to be picked up, and that is frightening. If you know very much about what happened in Germany from 1932 to 1939, Hitler was actually sworn in as chancellor in 1936, so it actually dated back before that time to the beginning of the Great Depression in 1929 and 1930. But there were literally dozens of political parties, and the Nazis were a tiny little fringe group of extremists that nobody paid very much attention to. And stop and think how quickly it all happened. There was a power vacuum. Germany lay dismembered. The Danzig Corridor was in place. She had lost the Marshalls and the Gilbert. She had lost her East African colonies. She had lost the Sudetenland. She had lost the Rhineland. It had been demilitarized and was occupied by the French. Germany lay partitioned under the Treaty of Versailles. Germany was impoverished because the entire world slumped into a terrible economic depression, the Great Depression in which a lot of us, I, grew up. And we knew just how destitute and desperate we really were with tramps coming by on a daily basis begging for a cup of soup and saying, could they do my job as a little boy and stack my mother's wood for a cup of soup? And it was that way in Germany as well. They wanted food, clothing, and shelter. They wanted an end to the bully boys and their private armies, which were not against the law on that day, because here in Western society, if you wanted to go out and start a security system and arm your guards and say, this is my private army, it's against the law. You can't do it. They would call you a paramilitary organization. You would immediately come under scrutiny of the FBI and the CIA and the local and the state and county and federal police and everybody else, and you couldn't get away with it. But there was no such law in Germany. Political parties who wanted to have public meetings were free to arm their own private armies, and so Hitler did so. It was called the SA, under Ernst Strong. In a very short period of time, from an absolute unknown, having spent years in jail after the infamous putsch down in Munich and writing his book, My Struggle or Mein Kampf, Hitler went rising to power when an ancient old doddering figurehead, first Ludendorff and later von Bismarck, died. And Hitler was given a chancellorship in 1936, and by 1939 had plunged the world in war. 1945. How few years later, from 36 to 45 is nine years. From the time I was no longer with Worldwide until today is 11 years. How short a time in world history all of those enormous events took place. How long do you think it's going to take for nations such as Poland, like Czechoslovakia, Hungary, 
perhaps Romania, but I feel that because of its more agrarian society and lack of basic industry, with the exception of the Ploiesti oil fields, that perhaps Romania may not be one of the ten, but that's just guesswork, and don't quote me on that. But at least some of the Central European nations, especially those along the German border, East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia being the most important ones, together with Hungary, how long do you think it is going to take for what happens inside of those countries to be almost exactly what happened in Cuba? Given disorder, given a complete lack of everything, they are now taking to the streets to scream about. Do you think those people, 200,000 strong, out there in 30 degrees of weather with their torch lights and their placards are going to immediately get a job? A warm place to sleep, a nice car to drive, more food to eat. You mean, you think really reform is, is going to come as quick as the dismantling of these governments? No way. It's going to take time, a long time. And it's going to be in the hands of people who have had absolutely no experience with a single democratic institution. Not in transportation, education, the system of of jurisprudence, not in government, not in any aspect of society. Have they had any experience, like the prisoner, who has to go and get himself arrested and get thrown back in jail because he cannot cope, he doesn't know how to live without someone telling him what to do. You are looking at tens of millions of people who have been regimented, brutally regimented, for the last not just 44 years, but in many cases for their entire history in Eastern Europe. If we think an American-style democracy is only a matter of months away in Czechoslovakia or Poland or Hungary or East Germany, we better think again because they are going to simply leap out of the arms of one despotic system into another. I was amazed when I received an article that seems to be so far-flung, and yet it, again, reminds me of many things that I've said for the past 30-some years. that talked about the royals of Europe. It even talked about the royal family of Germany. And as I was researching an article written in the Plain Truth magazine upon the occasion of the visit of Queen Elizabeth to Berlin and to other West German cities, I was really struck by what some of the West German writers had said about her visit. It was an outpouring of emotion that they had rarely ever seen. And they talked about the German character. And they said that the German people absolutely revel in the idea of a monarch, of looking to a throne, of looking to one absolute ruler. And this is back in the 60s when that visit took place. And it really struck me because I read it just yesterday morning to refresh my memory. I'd forgotten about that visit, frankly, in the decades that have gone by since. And then I recalled another article that had been sent in to me by one of our church members about the pretenders to the throne all over Europe. But the royal families of yesteryear are still there. Actually, do you believe that a Romanian princess is one of the actresses on one of our soapbox operas called Dallas? She has a very long name, she's a very beautiful dark-haired girl, and she's from one of those Eastern European countries, and she's mentioned in this article, and there's a very great wave of enthusiasm toward the idea of restoring her to an ancient throne, and she is a bit player on an American soapbox opera. But they're there. 
They're in Scandinavia and Central Europe, the royals. It makes me wonder, is the Bible literally telling us that there are going to be ten kings? I have always said, well, that could be satisfied by a president, a premier, a prime minister, by whatever is the title of a leader of a government. He will be a despot, a dictator, an absolute leader, but will it actually boil down to a king? I'll tell you this. I have said time and again that I expect either the death or the abdication of Elizabeth II and the emergence of Prince Charles and eventually the economic malaise of Britain to become so acute that the only thing that is going to keep them from just total starvation, the complete disintegration of their entire economic system will be the strong hand of perhaps an absolute monarch. I don't know that that is so. That is guesswork. There is nothing in the Bible that tells me so except a shadowy possibility of the meaning of the 22nd chapter of Isaiah and the mysterious type of a man called Shebna, who is a prince who is over Israel, who is removed, and the nail that is in the sure place, who has all the titles that belong only to Christ, is the individual who replaces a man called Shebna. So if it is not Charles... It is some other leader of the British nation, and it is the last leader who will be in place in Britain because it is the individual who sits on the throne that exists on this earth which Christ is coming to inherit. He shall inherit the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Will there be a man who is now living that we know as Prince Charles, seated on that very throne, when Jesus Christ of Nazareth comes to take, him, uh, take it away from him. I think what we're going to see in the near future is total chaos in Eastern Europe. But we're going to see the disintegration of the Warsaw Pact and NATO a lot much more quickly than we think. And we could be seeing it in a matter of days. We could see it, as agreed upon, on that ship off Malta in a matter of days. I don't know how many hundreds of times I've said NATO is going to collapse, the Warsaw Pact is going to disintegrate, Eastern Europe is going to come out from behind the Iron Curtain, ten nations are going to come together. Now, it's going to take time. This is not a time for hysteria. It's not a time for a lot of gloating, I told you so. It's merely a time for sober reflection at all that we have been committed to in all of these decades. It's a time for writing articles, preaching sermons, doing television programs. And it's a time for hoping and praying that we can be on ten times the number of stations we're on today. For feeling perhaps a little chagrined, ashamed, and sorry that I cannot go before the American people on 1,000 television stations and deliver the same message that I deliver to you here and instead must feel that I am only able to get out on perhaps 40, 41, or two television channels to a limited number of our people. And I'll be trying to do the best job I possibly can. But it's certainly a time to remind ourselves of the commission we have been given, of the job before us, of the tumultuous years that lie ahead, and remind ourselves not only the prophecies about an emerging Europe and its eventual economic preponderance, its military and eventual total, worshipful, church-state union, which is going to be so adored by all of its tens of millions of people, but to very sadly look at the prophecies that God levies against the United States of America and Britain, and to think again about the disintegration of our homes and families, about drugs and crime and AIDS, about our lack of resolve, 
about the leak, the uh, weak uh, will, I should say, of our leadership and the lack of decision-making at the highest levels in government, the almost wimpy-like manner of addressing truly monumental global world events, and the lack of innovation, a lack of being out in front to seize the reins of leadership and to make challenging and significant and really world-shaking decisions and statements that keep America strong and at the head of all of this that is happening. It's time to reflect on what we have been saying for these past 25 years about Japan, about a book that is written recently by the head of the Sony Corporation that says Japan should say no to America. And all of the incursions of these foreigners into American industry and business and even farmlands and blue chip stock companies and into our mines and our hotel systems and transportation like Pan-Arabian American Airlines and all of the other huge corporations in which Japanese and Central Europeans and Arabs have bought. We need to be on more television. I need to be back on radio. We need to be having 20th Century Watch with the kind of articles we're preparing now in the hands of about 20 million Americans instead of about 65,000. We're so small and we're so tiny and we have such little strength. And I sound like me and like my father before me in the middle 1950s when we were smaller than the Church of God International is today. I thought... The first time I ever spoke from a pulpit, that I was within five, seven, or ten years or so of seeing the great tribulation and the beginning of the day of the Lord and the second coming of Jesus Christ. Later on, a scenario was worked out that depended upon a certain series of 19-year time cycles. And by about 1956, 7, 8, and 9, that was about all we heard about the 19-year time cycles. And so I thought... By about 1972, all of this would really begin to come to pass. But in 1965, I thought otherwise, because of a scenario that involved four seven-year periods of punishment to come on upon Israel, which did not occur. When I first went to Petra and saw it with my own eyes in 1966, I knew at that time that that was absolute poppycock, that that was not going to happen. We weren't going to go to Petra in 1972. And then I began to study a little further into the Metonic Cycle, and began to tell our people, don't depend upon dates. Don't look to going to Petra. And I got myself in a lot of trouble for doing that. But somehow, God led me that understanding before many others in official positions were willing to admit it or to accept it. And at least many of our people were not as upset as they could have been if I had just turned my blinders down over my eyes, like some have confessed to doing, and plugged my ears shut and just stuck with the old party line, we're going to go to Petra in 1972. But I didn't. I tried to warn and to caution our people. And I would like to warn and caution us today. This is not a time for hysteria. But I remind myself of myself back during that day because then we were so small. And yet as I look back now at that decade that took place from about 1958 when we were so tiny, to 1968, just one year after my mom died, that we had grown, I guess, by hundreds of percentage points in that one decade. I'm telling you that if Almighty God wants the message that he has given us to go to this nation, to go to its leaders, to eventually go to the American Congress, he is going to send it. And if we are not willing to do that work, 
He will raise up someone who will do it. Because he is not going to allow the bulk of the people of this country, whom he loves, he loves the United States of America, as do all of us. He doesn't want to see all these horrifying things that are going to happen to us. He wrings his hands, he says, through his prophets, even as Jesus cried over Jerusalem, as prophet after prophet said, Why will you die, O Israel? The Eternal has no delight in the death of his servants, but that, that they would repent and turn from their evil way, and that he would not bring all the evil that he has purposed upon them. And I'm reminded, too, of the prophecy in Ezekiel 33 of the work of the watchman, that we, if we are faithful to the message and deliver that message to as many people as we possibly can, we will have acquitted ourselves well enough to have delivered our own souls, so he says. But if we fail, if we shirk, if we do not carry that witness and warning to the world, then he will require the blood of our own beloved cousins and uncles and extended family, our neighbors and our friends, everyone we've ever known or loved, and all of the rest of our beloved population of the United States of America at our hands. I don't want anybody's blood on my hands, not even by accident. God is not going to allow this beloved country, to look up in absolute dumbfounded amazement someday and say, but you never told me. You never warned me that this was going to happen. How can you be God and not let me know and give me a chance to repent? Is that great commission yet to be done? Shortly before his death, my father knew that his ministry was over and said so. But he had it wrong. He said the work had been accomplished. He said the gospel had gone to all nations. He said that his talking before a group of perhaps educators or Rotarians in the nation in which a half of the population, a quarter of the population of the world, rather, lives, China, had carried the gospel to China, when in fact he never even mentioned the name of Jesus Christ or the word gospel, but merely talked about a strong hand from someplace. We conducted a survey several years ago that answers my question. Following the Feast of Tabernacles, many dozens of our brethren got on the telephone and just went through the telephone book in their area and helped me with a survey and sent me the results of it. And their questions were, who do you perceive as the biggest enemy of the United States of America today? Ninety-some percent, the Soviet Union. Two or three wise guys, the United States itself. One person with a weird idea, Iran. Maybe one out of hundreds a coming United States of Europe. You could walk up and down the streets and the shopping malls of the United States of America and every large city where our teeming millions throng before this coming Christmas season and ask them that same question, and you will not find one out of hundreds who will tell you, oh, America is destined to go down before a United States of Europe that will be dominated by the Roman Catholic Church and a pope who is eventually going to move his headquarters to the Vatican, and a European army that is going to descend into the Middle East to guarantee the sovereignty and the national integrity of the Israeli people in the wake of a new round of Middle Eastern war. But America is going down the drain. You won't find one, perhaps out of thousands, who will tell you that that is what prophecy says is going to happen to our beloved country.
That's why I say our work has not yet truly begun. It is time now not to say, I told you so, but to go out and say, I tell you so.